Why are police photographing our license plate? What are we doing for veterans returning home damaged physically and mentally, suffering from depression, homelessness, and suicide? Why did the Supreme Court deposit corporate money into our electoral process? Should we redefine middle class as working poor? Or is it just another Wall Street merger? What's really behind new voter picture ID laws in certain states? Why aren't NBC, ABC, CBS, and Fox asking these questions? Welcome to the Reasonable Voice radio show. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice. The mission of the Reasonable Voice is to connect the dots between politics and finance, the need for better and more affordable education, our humanity, world peace, and, of course, the arts, which we then gladly provide our listeners, the voting public, as informative food for thought to provoke their self-determination and appetite for equal economic opportunity and justice for all without truth decay. The Reasonable Voices are advocates prioritizing education, preserving our history, leading by example for a peaceful and prosperous world by evoking and embracing both creative artists and political unity as solutions to our challenges. Welcome to the Reasonable Voices talk radio show. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, and as always, we have a tremendous guest for you today. He is Ben Lilliston, the Director of Corporate Strategies and Climate Change at the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. That's IATP for those in the know, but we're going to ask him what all that means after I tell you a bit more about him. Ben Lilliston. Well, first of all, Ben, how are you today? I'm doing very good. Thank good. You. Good. I just want to tell everyone a bit more about you. Ben has a Bachelor of Philosophy degree from University of Miami in Ohio. He previously served as IATP's Communications Director and Vice President for Programs. Ben has worked as a researcher, a writer, and editor at a number of organizations, including the Center for Study of Responsive Law. I love that. The Corporate Crime Reporter, the uh, Multinational Monitor, Cancer Prevention Coalition, and Sustain. He's a frequently published writer, by the way, most recently as a contributor to Mandate for Change in Lexington, and previously as the co-author of the book Genetically Engineered Foods, A Guide for Consumers. Now, that's something we might be able to touch on, but to get back to Ben now, Ben, first of all, for those of us not in the know, what is the IATP exactly? Yeah, uh, the Institute for Egg and Trade Policy, we were founded in the Mm -hmm. mid-80s. At that time, there was a farm crisis uh, really taking hold, particularly in the Midwest part of the country. And people were trying to understand what are the causes for this. There's massive farm foreclosures and a lot of farmers... um, you know, having to abandon their farms. Mm-hmm. Uh, so people are trying to understand why is this happening? What are the economic factors? And, and also what are the global factors? And that's partly why we were set up is to look at uh, po- uh, global policies as well as national level policies that impact farmers on the ground and try to understand what policies are working against them and what you would need to do to set up a policy framework that supports family farmers and also supports the environment, supports healthy food for consumers. So that's, that's, we're kind of a think tank. We put out a lot of uh, research writing, but we definitely have a point of view. And and in this case, uh, we'll we'll talk a little bit about trade, but we have a a definite point of view about the role of trade agreements and how they impact uh, uh, farmers, the environment and, and consumers. You know, I think, uh, thank you for that, Ben. I think if we only talked, we won't, but if we only talked about your article, Big Meat Swallows the Trans-Pacific Partnership, I think we would get so much of what, of concern, or should be concerned, certainly to farmers, but also to everybody who eats, and everyone who wonders what our government is doing and trading away and what agreements are we being tied to and generations being tied to. Now, the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, we've talked about a lot on this show, and and, uh, anyone who 
stays up with the news, uh, although if it doesn't bleed, it doesn't always lead, but it's there if you're looking for it. So what is the TPP, and what countries are part of it? Yeah, so the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership is a, a free trade agreement that includes uh, a dozen countries around the Pacific Rim, so around Pacific Ocean. So, of course, the United States, uh, Canada, Mexico, it goes down, it includes uh, Chile, Peru, and then in Asia, it includes Japan, uh, Malaysia, uh, Singapore, Brunei, mm. and then Australia and New Zealand, So and Vietnam. Uh, uh, I think I got all of them there. Yes. Um, so it's a, it's a big, very big trade agreement, free trade agreement, mm-hmm. um, and uh, is along the lines of NAFTA, and a lot of people are probably more familiar with NAFTA, yes. the North American Free Trade Agreement. So it's sort of an extension of that to include more countries, and uh, it's quite consistent with that approach on free trade, which is... The goal is really to facilitate trade and then lower tariffs. Mm-hmm. So those are taxes between countries when you're trading goods. You know, we may have a certain number of taxes that we put on any any good coming into this country, and it, it gets really complicated, but different, different taxes for different goods. And so the idea is to kind of get rid of those and or at least lower them to a certain extent to facilitate more trade. But the agreement also includes a lot of other things in mm-hmm. there uh, besides just uh, uh, tariffs. It includes things like around regulations and the ability of, of it grants special rights for corporations to challenge laws that they don't like. Mm. So it's got a, a, a lot of other elements to it. Intellectual property is another part of it and things like that that, that go beyond other free trade agreements and I think have raised a lot of sort of alarm bells with people because um, in our opinion, and, and I think many, we haven't really had a good, robust debate in this country about yes. the role of trade. Yes. And it's starting to emerge. You're starting to see it kind of explode here in this presidential election. Yes. But I think one of the reasons it's, it's popping up right now is because we haven't had that discussion about what is a good free trade uh, trade agreement? What is a what is trade for? What are we trying to accomplish? Mm-hmm. Who is it for? Who's going to benefit from it and who won't? And so, because we haven't had that conversation, we we've, we've just continued as a country to push forward on this particular model established in NAFTA and tried to kind of ignore that there are winners and losers in trade agreements mm-hmm. and some communities lose out lose some more people than others, lose yes. out yeah and some and some there are costs to it and can we think of trade in a different way can we have different types of goals when we put together trade agreements rather than simply facilitating trade for multinational corporations which is how it's set up now and can we have a more open debate about it this trade agreement the trans-pacific partnership was negotiated entirely in secret so there was not public. No one knew what was in it until they finally published it at the end. So, sorry, to go back to your question, exactly what, where are we in the process? Yes. They, they reached an agreement uh, last year, towards the end of last year, in 2015. Mm-hmm. President Obama and other leaders in the, in, of countries who are participating signed, signed the agreement in early February. But in order for it to go effect, it still has to be approved by Congress. Yes. And and as well as the legislatures in those other countries. So it has not been approved by any countries yet. And the Obama administration, there's still some things that have to take place. They have to do a thorough economic assessment that's done by something called the International Trade Commission. Mm-hmm. So they're looking at TPP, and they're going to put out a report in May that says this is what we think are going to be the economic effects. These mm-hmm. are the pluses, these are the minuses. And so they've been taking a lot of input in how to do that analysis. So that will be, that'll be one uh, step. And then the Obama administration will submit to Congress what's called implementing legislation, which is to say, in order for us to comply with this TPP, these are the type of changes in policy that are going to have to take place, whether we're going to have to change some laws or to come into compliance. So that'll be outlined there. And then and then 
Congress will go through the process of, of voting for it or against it. And that's the other thing worth mentioning is that Congress did pass last year, very contentious, but they passed something called Fast Track, yes. which took away their ability to make any amendments to the agreement. Mm-hmm. So they, they, they can't say, well, we don't like this part, let's change that part, or it's done. It's an up or down vote. So they can either they're either for it or against it, and and uh, why they tied their hands like that is is a big question. Yes. But they chose to do that, and so that's where we are uh, because the TPP has become so controversial. There's a, there's real questions about whether it will be brought up this year, mm-hmm. uh, particularly during the election cycle. Yes. Um, because and, and because it's become such an issue in the presidential campaigns, and you have candidates on both parties uh, criticizing it and saying that they would oppose it. So I think it's unlikely that it will be brought forward during this season, although it's possible. Yes. Um, but they are talking about bringing it forward in the lame duck session. So yes. that's the time after the elections, before the new Congress and the new president come into office, so December uh, in early January. I think uh, uh, there are many mysteries about how this particular Congress is functioning, but I think the whole idea, they, they have mastered one thing, at least in my opinion, to have their cake and eat it too. If they wait until after the election but before the inauguration, they kind of have the best of both worlds. They'll know who the next president is and therefore can decide what they want to do, especially with TPP and Supreme Court, etc., uh, and whether they have to hurry up and rush before a Democrat or, you know, wait. But it's not necessarily the best way to govern. But getting back to you and TPP, the using, you know, I mean, NAFTA is still being argued about back and forth. And, of course, a lot of people who are against TPP refer to it as NAFTA on steroids. But using uh, the example that you give in this wonderful article that I referred to earlier Big Meat Swallows the Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, published in November 2014. The example of what happens when the Big Meat Corporations uh, issued an ultimatum to Japan, because I think that reality of that fact is uh, one of the biggest fears about TPP. So can we can we use that as an example and 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 tell us what that how that affects potentially the rest of us, including the United States? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think um, the important thing to think about when you think about trade agreements, and and you know our, our organization, this is what we've been doing for thirty years in analyzing trade agreements, is to is to understand the interests involved and what they want, what yes. they what they're trying to accomplish, and. Uh, as I mentioned, the TPP was negotiated uh, almost entirely in secret. Mm-hmm. And what the U.S. Trade Representative did have, and and who was at the negotiating table, were these different advisory committees, mm. trade advisory committees set up by the the U.S. Trade Representative. And many of those are are corporations and financial institutions. Mm-hmm. So they those guys do actually have an inside track into what's being negotiated and give input on sure. the text and. Many, uh, so we look at agriculture very closely and, and, and the big agribusiness companies, many of the meat companies, but also grain companies, seed companies Dairy. are at the table yes. uh, yeah, negotiating these deals. And when you look at these deals, what the companies, these are multinational companies. So a lot of times we think about corporations as being like a U.S. corporation. So we're in Minnesota. Cargill is a... Uh, based here, uh, General Mills is based here. You know, you think about Coca-Cola, we think about them in Pennsylvania or, or Atlanta, Georgia, or wherever they're based. We think of those as U.S. companies, but they don't think of themselves that way. Yes, they, exactly. they think of themselves as global corporations, yes. and they they are operating in multiple countries. So what they uh, what you saw in the in the example that you mentioned was the big beef producing, you know, cattle producing countries, mm-hmm. U.S., Australia, Canada, Mexico, and New Zealand, but really the big companies in those countries. Yes. 
many of them operate in all five of those countries. So they're so they are have operations there. They're all pushing to try to get into Japan's market. Japan yes. was in the case of agriculture was the real target. They have high tariffs. They consume a lot of meat, beef and pork in particular. Um, so these companies it's not about necessarily the U.S. getting into Japan. It's mm -hmm. about those companies, yes. wherever they're operating, whether it be Australia, New Zealand, Vietnam, trying to get into Japan's market because that's what they, they saw as the biggest market. You know, the U.S. is very, we're very open with our markets mm -hmm. by and large. There are some exceptions, but so really with a lot of these free trade deals, what we're trying to do is kind of force other countries open. <laughs> It would be, but I think it's a mistake to think about it that we will suddenly, as a country or, or rural communities or farmers, whatever, will benefit from that. It's really these companies who, as I said, have operations in multiple countries are, are the ones who will really benefit for any opening of markets. And the, the, the benefits very rarely trickle down. It's, it's the idea that, oh, if, 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 if it's good for Cargill or JBS or Tyson's Food or Smithfield Pork, then it'll filter down to farmers and rural communities here. And that has not been the case uh, as we've seen in past, past yes. free trade agreements. Trickle down just does not seem to work economically ever. I, I don't know. I mean, I know where the concept comes from, and it is a... Uh, whatever adjective you want to put in front of it, economic theory, but it it just doesn't seem to work out that way. It it seems to always stop at the top, and um, um, I don't want to get off subject, but I just um, I guess that kind of tells us who and is really behind and most favors the TPP and and why. That's kind of what you've been saying. Yes, those who benefit most economically, at least potentially. Uh, are the people who are most in favor and most behind uh, this the TPP? But those who are not so sure of how uh, the USA economy is going to be impacted are less inclined to be pro TPP. Is that too oversimplified? No, I think that's right. I mean, I, I think that there's not a lot of popularity for these trade agreements because people have experienced NAFTA. And yes. they, they've seen the effects and. Yeah, it's been good for companies that are now able to operate in multiple countries and they're able to find uh, the lowest wage that they can pay workers. They've been able to find the lowest price they can pay farmers. They've been able to find places where they can, uh, that have the least environmental regulations uh, or other kind of work safe regulations. Uh, and they've been granted special rights. This is part of a sort of mind-blowing element of NAFTA and would also be part of TPP is that these companies, when they operate in, a, in another country, actually are granted special legal rights to challenge regulations and rules that they think could impact their, their profits. So probably the, the best known recent case of that is the Keystone Pipeline, which yes. uh, you know many people are probably aware of that uh, President Obama rejected uh, that would bring um, tar sands oil from Alberta uh, through the United States to be refined and sent elsewhere. And, you know, whether you agree with President Obama's decision or not uh, to reject that pipeline, I think almost everyone would agree that that should be a, a United States decision. Yes. That, that it is within our parameters as a government to make that decision. And TransCanada, the owner of that pipeline, is, is suing the United States government for $15 billion saying that this violated NAFTA. And most people who look at that case, legal experts would say, yeah, they have a very good case. Yes. They have a very good chance that they will win that case. So that goes to show, and that, and that same kind of element will be in the Trans-Pacific Partnership, bringing in a, a whole uh, huge number, hundreds of more foreign corporations from the other countries, so any of the countries in TPP, any corporation space there could bring similar challenges in the United States if uh, rules or regulations are made that they feel like have impinged their ability to uh, to make future profits. So it's a, uh, a very dangerous sort of special corporate rights provision that we and many others are 
really raising alarms about and were raised before they finished TPP and, and are still being raised. You know, we, we need to go to a break very soon, Ben, but I want to say that I'm glad you mentioned the Keystone because that's a, a perfect example right here at home in the USA. And I had alluded to Japan and something similar happened to Japan. The corporations, uh, yes, just told Japan, either you drop the, the tariffs on agricultural products or we throw you out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Is that is that about what happened there? be a legal challenge that was just more of a <laughs> sort of negotiating threat uh, uh, uh-huh. uh, by these uh, they were saying yeah uh, they, it was a that was a that was a what i would call a negotiating threat which uh-huh. was that you adhere to our demands or we're going to kick you out and we'll just have the other countries the other 11 countries will make a deal um but, but it does speak with, to the mindset of uh, the corporations involved the global absolutely Absolutely. And, and it's the kind of thing where, you know, Japan, you know, they could, they, they have reached an agreement in TPP to roll their tariffs, although it's over time, it's a gradual thing, and it's, and it's maybe not as much as the meat companies wanted, but they all agree that it's, it's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's say Japan in five years says, you know what, you know, this has been harmful to bring in all this beef from other countries been harmful to our own farmers. We have beef farmers and they're being undercut by this global market. Yes. So we need to make some changes to protect them and we may need to reinstitute these tariffs or other things. That's the kind of thing that any of these meat companies who are not in Japan could challenge them through a legal, um, they would now have the legal standing to do that uh, if TPP goes forward. Like the Keystone suit. Okay, we're going to take a break. This is um, this is amazingly enlightening, and I think something we need to pay attention to. So we'll be back with Ben Lilliston, uh, the Director of Corporate Strategies and Climate Change at the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy, IATP. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Another film rental discovery. Welcome to the Indie Film Minute. 1981 was the most violent year in modern New York City history. A most violent year is set in that time and place. Abel Morales is a hardworking immigrant. Creating the American dream of success earned the right way. He works smart and plays by the rules, building a clean business in a corrupt world. But just as he sets in motion the kind of high-stakes transaction that can make or break a man, ruthless and corrupt competitors begin to pick him apart. Abel has a lot on his plate. Ana Morales is the daughter of a gangster. She admires her husband, but she comes from a family that would handle problems a bit differently. Played with palpably restrained heat by Jessica Chastain, she might be the answer, or the problem itself. Black and white fade to gray, and right and wrong fade to... A Most Violent Year is writer-director J.C. Chandor's third feature film and third Indie Film Minute recommendation, following Margin Call and All is Lost. Each of these films is eminently different. The only similarity among them is that events spiral out of a worthy protagonist's control. And of course, each exhibit distinctively masterful filmmaking. A Most Violent Year. Not in theaters. Discovery through rental. Find us on the web at IndieFilmMinute.com. Welcome back to the Reasonable Voices talk radio show. My guest today, uh, as as we know, is Ben Lilliston, who is the Director of Corporate Strategies and Climate Change at the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy, that's IATP. And during the break, I was uh, asking Ben, it seems to me that I'm, I'm aware of TPP, and we've done other shows with other guests on the Trans-Pacific uh, Trade um, partnership. Uh, But um, I wonder why we don't seem to hear, I mean, we did when the President Obama was going after fast track and and the Congress did its vote, yes, and then Senator Mitch McConnell and I agreed finally on something, and that was not to vote on TPP uh, until it's more convenient. (laughs) But in any case, they, they have stopped it for the moment. But 
why is it we don't hear more about this enormous thing, this TPP and its potential impact on American lives? I mean, re really, not philosophically, but I mean, truly an impact that, uh, in the grocery stores and everywhere. Um, why is it we're not hearing more about it in the media? Is that a fair question for you? Absolutely, yeah, it's a fair question. Um, well, here's my you know take on it. Um, is that uh, a couple things have happened in um, in both discussions around trade, but also in the media, the way the media is constructed. Um, mm -hmm. When um, you know, I about 15 years ago, when I really start to dig deep in, on trade and, and do a lot of media outreach around this issue, there used to actually be a lot of trade reporters out there, guys. Uh -huh. and men, and women, men and women who actually, their job was to cover trade yes. and to report about it in both the print and, and radio and even TV. Um, and with the consolidation of media and the way we've the media landscape has changed so much since then, you have very few reporters and, and many people would probably be, I mean, I literally maybe a handful mm. uh, and, and, and maybe even less whose full-time job is to look at trade agreements and their impact on people's lives. Yes. And, and uh, there are, of course, they have uh, a huge impact on our economy. Uh, mm -hmm. I, would, I would say much of our economy is impacted by economic globalization uh, and economic globalization is driven by trade agreements and trade rules. But, so that's one element is that we don't have the media, particularly those with knowledge and understanding of how these things work, really reporting and translating to communities and, and uh, people about what's happening and what the implications are. Mm. The other thing is that for a long time, and, and if you look at NAFTA, uh, it was almost unanimously supported by the editorial boards of the media around the country. Yes. I think uh, John Nichols at The Nation documented this, and I, I, feel, I think there was one newspaper, which is, I think, Toledo Blade, I want to say, mm -hmm. was the one who said NAFTA is not a good idea. They, they, have, they had bought into this sort of free trade orthodoxy, which is that trade is automatically good mm -hmm. under any circumstance. It doesn't matter. It's trade is good, and the idea that more trade lift up all boats, as we were talking about yes. before. Yes. Um, the idea that if, if corporations do well, everyone does well. And mm. and um, what we've seen over time here, of course, is that that's not true. Mm. It's possible for corporations and, and uh, folks on Wall Street to do quite well, yes. and the rest of us not do too, so well. And you know, certainly the communities that have lost manufacturing um, have not done well. Certain types of jobs in this country have, have gone away, and then we've seen so other shifts. Whether it's impacts on regulations, I've had just a very simple simple example. Last year, the World Trade Organization struck down consumers' right to know about where their meat is produced. Yes. Called something called country of origin labeling. So, yes. so the most basic thing that we have in this country passed in the last farm bill. Said you need to be able to go go to a grocery store, buy your beef, and say, "Was this U.S. produced?" Right? Yes. And they said, "No, you can't do that. That's against trade rules." So that that gives you an and that was a requirement yeah. that, uh, of companies. Now companies can voluntarily do that, so that, so you may still see stuff like that. But that's a voluntary thing. They can choose not to tell you whether it came from Canada or Mexico or China or wherever. Mm -hmm. And so that, that's a it's an example of how we've seen trade rules drift to a point where it's clearly not benefiting consumers yes. or, or people in their life, but it is benefiting those companies that control that supply chain. And so I think that part of why people are really surprised that trade has come up in these presidential campaigns this year is that the media has not been covering it but people have been feeling it, and, yes. and they've been feeling it in their life, and they know that something's not right. So when Trump says these agreements are not fair, and Bernie Sanders says these agreements are not fair, it's resonating with people. They're saying, yeah, yes. yeah you're right. What, what, what am I getting out of it? And so you have the U.S. Chamber of Commerce pushing for these trade agreements and the multinational 
companies that are part of the trade advisory committees and they're aggressively pushing for them but there's a real disconnect in in the rest of the country and by the way a lot of small businesses are also against these trade agreements so it's not just business versus everyone else Mm -hmm. you know smaller businesses businesses with markets in the u.s and targeting u.s markets are also being impacted by these trade agreements so it's a like I, I think I mentioned before, we've avoided the conversation. Yes. The media has not done a good job at facilitating that conversation, giving everyone information and, and analysis and so forth. And so now it's being pushed to the forefront. So in some ways, it's a good thing. It's too bad that it has to be under the circumstances of a looming giant trade agreement yes. like the Trans-Pacific Partnership. But you know, to try to be a little more positive, I think if we uh, do reject this trade agreement, and I think there's a very good chance that we will, mm-hmm. it will definitely require a new conversation about trade. Exactly. And I hope that our politicians are learning that lesson during this campaign, that they need to have that conversation, that discussion about what do we really want to accomplish with these trade agreements and whose interests are we negotiating. And I, and I think, and I don't say this facetiously, but anything in which uh, uh, Senator Mitch McConnell and I can agree and uh, Senator Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump can agree, I think it, at least, and I again, I'm not being facetious, I think that is at least light at the end of the tunnel that we can indeed have a conversation with, with people with whom we disagree on many things, but you can still have a conversation, communicate, and, and weigh the pros and cons, but which we've seen too little of lately. But I wonder, is there any uh, benefit to the U.S. economy by uh, TPP, by entering into that agreement? Well, you know, that's what's one of the really interesting parts of this debate on TPP and why they're having so much trouble getting it passed that there have been a number of economic analysis looking at the TPP and saying, okay, we're going to estimate this kind of growth. And the growth is really, really small by the most positive Mm. uh, sort of economists looking at this. They won't guarantee, they won't say that new jobs are going to be created. So they won't say that. Mm -hmm. What they're saying is by 2030, we'll have 0.5% growth in GDP because of TPP, which is, you know, kind of ludicrous yeah. to estimate that far in advance and you know many different factors of course will be impacting the economy by then it's a and, and it's such a small amount when you look at all the other factors in the economy so it's a um, that's that's the rosiest scenario um, there's been a big debate among economists about how you actually estimate the impacts of future trade agreements because they've been so wrong in the past. Yes, exactly. You know, talking, about, talking about how great NAFTA will be, how great our entry into the World Trade Organization will be, and then when, when it turns out that they're wrong, they, they still haven't, some, some economists have not adjusted their models, others have, and so the, there was a major analysis put out by Tufts University uh, in Boston where they have updated uh, and use different methodology, and their their assessment is that TPP will be a negative for mm. the United States, mm-hmm. will increase inequality, which we've seen in past trade agreements. They actually push wages down. You know, they say uh, some other countries will benefit, Vietnam in particular, because yes. um, you can expect a lot of companies sort of moving there for sure. the low-wage yeah, environment exactly. and, and so forth. So there's a big debate, but, but even if within that debate, the gains are so small mm-hmm. that it really, I think, begs the question of why are we going, why are we pushing this through? Exactly. Let's take a step back and rethink our approach on trade. You know, and another thing, uh, the word trade even, even though they're, they're, uh, everything you're describing does come down to uh, you give us this, we'll give you that, etc., that negotiation, it really, uh, trade deals have become something less like what I think trade is, not that I'm some expert on trade, but it's, it just seems to me now it's more about the bottom line for corporations. It's more about how a global company can influence government activity and the populace for that matter. So is that what's happening? Are we just using it? We're so good at finding that little euphemism, that nice fuzzy word. I mean, I should know. Uh, and and you too, as a communications director, we we look for the, that phrase that makes something uh, more palatable. 
But have we gone too far with the word trade? I mean, are we calling it what it is or is it just a, what we've always called it? I think that's a great, great question, and, and I think you really hit on something. These these agreements, uh, agreements actually used to be about trade, yes. <laughs> and the modern day ones, and particularly this TPP. There's 30 chapters of it, mm. and the vast, vast majority of those chapters are not about tariffs. What yeah. we usually think of as trade. How do we? Uh, so they have all kinds of chapters in there. One that we're particularly paying attention to has to do with food safety. Mm. How, do you, how do you set regulations? What, what companies want are common regulations among all the countries so that they can make trade easier. If, you, if it's approved in your country, then it should be approved in my country. Mm. It should be approved in one of the others, and we should be able to trade around easily, mm. that, which sounds actually like, oh, that would be a good idea. The problem is that what generally happens is it, it lowers regulation, so they look around for the lowest common denominator, yes. and it takes away the, the ability of countries to say, hey, look, you may have that particular regulation about uh, animal drugs and raising animals, mm-hmm. like antibiotics or rectopamine, which is a growth enhancer in, in raising pork, or, or chlorine rinses, which we do here in the United States with poultry, but other countries may say, you know what, we, we, we think that that's a risk. You take away the ability of countries to kind of set their own regulations yes. when you lock in this kind of trade agreement. So it, it, those, those are the kind of things, there's a whole chapter, a big chapter on intellectual property, and that's a big deal for the drug companies. And there's there's a lot of groups that have really focused on access to medicines. And when you lock in long patents, for drug companies, which yes. is what they want in the TPP, it's going to make drugs more expensive. Yes. And and it's agreed to in a trade agreement, so you can't change it within your own country. So in, in our situation, we look at patents and intellectual property around seeds. That's, of course, a, a point of controversy uh, both in the United States with a lot of genetically engineered seeds and crops out there, but, but also in other countries that haven't adopted genetically engineered seeds to the extent that we have. Yes. And there are intellectual property requirements in these trade deals where countries have to agree to basically what the big biotech seed companies want and shift to a much more rigid uh, patent system that doesn't allow farmers to save seeds in the way that they have before or do their own breeding in the way that they have before. Um, So these are the kind of things that aren't necessarily trade, but um, they're more investment and more uh, sort of deregulatory measures in some cases, like food safety or um, increased patent protection in in the case of seeds and medicines uh, in the other direction. Uh, This is partly what trade agreements have have become about. And I think without any kind of public discussion or debate, and I think that's really part of the debate that has to happen is, you know, do we need trade agreements to have this kind of massive scope? Do they need to cover all aspects of the economy, or can we maybe more narrowly look at them, in fact, on trade? (laughs) And uh, uh, do they have to touch every element of our economy in the way that they do and be so far-reaching? You know, I couldn't agree with you more, and I think a lot of this, I mean, of course, then it goes back to knowing where your food comes from and food safety, and as you say, well, it just, it, it, we sort of relinquish, if we're not careful, we relinquish our power to make choices, and, or even to be informed, uh, and, but I think it is the responsibility of the, of the public. I mean, how does the American citizen get informed? What's our responsibility to get involved in the conversation? How do we do that? How do we get uh, guidance uh, from you and a website and your company? Yes. Even if they disagree with you, it's important for them to hear that someone 
it really cares about this yes. and, and is asking questions. But I think it's not just, and this is something that we haven't really talked about, not just the members of Congress, but it's also members of the state legislature. Yes. So people at your state government level. Um, many of them are not aware of the way that trade agreements can limit their ability to act at the state level. Yes. So, for example, some states have stronger regulations of chemicals than than the national le- national standard. Mm-hmm. You're looking at this uh, big battle right now about genetically engineered labeling where Vermont has a stronger standard than the, the national level. Mm-hmm. Any of those kind of things where a state is going further than the national standard, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a regulation. It could be uh, a policy where you have in your in your city, your state, to support businesses in your state. You may say, for our procurement dollars, whether it's like school food or energy, we're going to give preferences to businesses located in you know Minnesota, where we're based, or yeah. in Virginia, or in Maryland, or wherever that someone is based, we're going to give preferences there, and that's how we're going to set up the program. Well, that's the kind of thing that could be challenged under a trade deal. So a lot of people, even in local government, are not aware of the commitments that are being made in these trade agreements that could impact their ability to to set policy and do the things that really should be allowed at the local and state level. So. I think the biggest thing that that citizens can do is continue to ask questions. Yes. You know, have you thought about this? We're concerned about this. You don't have to be a trade expert, you know, and that's one of the things I think that going back to your your question, why haven't we had this debate and who's not serving? Trade agreements can be kind of intimidating Mm. and they're written in really legal, legalistic language and they can be kind of complex and, and people at the, in the government level often can be condescending when they talk about it. Oh, you don't understand this yes. and that. And, <laughs> and I think as citizens, our, our, you know, our obligation is to ask questions and say, we are concerned about that. We still have questions. This is, these are the things that we think are important. If this trade agreement is not creating new jobs and it's not including improving my quality of life, it's inhibiting my ability to know what I'm eating at the grocery store, yes. um, inhibiting my ability to support a local business or to have government to act to support a local business, then I have a problem with it. You know, yes. and uh, um, you know, I think that's the best sort of recommendation I can give. And, and, you know, I, I'll throw in a quick thing because we do have to go. I'd like to add to that that uh, having spoken myself directly with uh, a number of members of Congress, uh, it's it's not enough just to click the mouse for an online petition. That's great. I'm not saying not to do it. I've said it before. But you need to pick up the telephone or you need to carpool and go to D.C. or to your state capital. Uh, because, you know, as Ben is saying, a lot of these regulations or need for regulations are in the hands of the state governors and, and state legislators. So remember that. But talk to your congressmen. Talk to your, all of them are congressmen, I always say. It's all Congress, whether they're senators or representatives. But I won't go off on that. Um, ben Ben uh, Lilliston has been our guest today, and he has been incredibly informative uh, do try to find uh, online Big Meat Swallows Trans-Pacific Partnership, written by Ben Lidiston, uh published in November 6, 2014, of the Agriculture Trade TPP, uh, Industrialized Meat Food. You can download the document. And uh, also a reminder, Ben Lilliston is the Director of Corporate Strategies and Climate Change at the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy, IATP. Ben, thank you so very much for being on the show today. We appreciate all that you've said and and said it in a way that we all can understand. And now we must accept the challenge to question authority. Is that fair? I think that's right. (laughs) Definitely question conventional wisdom about about trade and and, uh, Hopefully we can start a new conversation on that. And, and I'll just add real quickly, if you want to find that paper, you can find it on our website at ietp.org. And give that website one more time, if you will. I-A-T-P dot O-R-G. 
Fantastic. Thank you, Ben Lilliston. So appreciate uh, all you do for us and uh, helping to guide us to do for ourselves as well. We wish you all the best as we do the United States of America and all American citizens and citizens of the world. Thank you, Ben. Bye now. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye. Stay with us as we'll be right back with a final comment from The Reasonable Voice. Another film rental discovery. Welcome to the Indie Film Minute. A most disturbing documentary won the 2003 Grand Jury Prize at the Sundance Film Festival. Arnold Friedman was considered a respectable high school teacher who taught private computer classes to privileged boys. But he had a secret. When postal inspectors raided his house in search of child pornography, they were concerned that he had almost constant contact with kids. Had his predilection crossed into real life? An investigation ensued, ensnaring his son Jesse as well. Or was it a witch hunt? Capturing the Freedmans is increasingly powerful as we come to know all the players. Were the police overzealous? Yes. Were the kids who provided damning testimony brainwashed? Very likely. Are the parents guilty of forcing hysterically derived and unproven facts into actions? You be the judge. What makes this documentary extraordinary is that David, another of Arnold's sons, was in the habit of filming everything he saw, and he kept filming throughout this family's ordeal. Everyone involved in the tragedy is on screen. The cops, the parents, the kids, and that hauntingly real footage of a family under extraordinary pressure in an unfathomable circumstance. Capturing the Freedmans. Not in theaters. Discovery through rental. Hello, I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, thanking you for joining us and becoming one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Beyond ISIL, Brussels, Cuba, and Obama. Beyond ISIS bombing havoc and death on innocence, and politicians cheered on for egging on incitement to violence, will we find the peace that passes all understanding? or climate change our way into an American spring. Beyond financial insecurity and emotional instability, will depression relegate us to angry name-calling, fear and hate, or the courage and presence of mind to carry on? Beyond silent Coolidge, Castro's mafia expulsion, and Khrushchev's missiles shall, under God, forever stitch hypocrisy into our free-will fabric, or shall we weave a new birth of freedom, proclaiming each person's freedoms equal to our own? Beyond JFK's blockade, Cheney's Guantanamo torture, and Raul Castro's Give Me a List, is there world peace in our Western Hemisphere future, or a KKK reincarnation? Beyond President Obama's assessment, you have two Cuban-Americans in the Republican Party running against a legacy of a black man who is president while arguing they are the best person to beat the Democratic nominee who will either be a woman or a Democratic Socialist. Do we turn coattails and run with the elite pack of self-entitled riding on the backs of the intolerant or stir anew our melting pot to harmonious perfection? Beyond Ferguson, Coal Ash, Porter Ranch, and Flint, are our best choices cow and trump gas? Or shall we take wing on wind turbines, chasing windmills to breathe in fresh resilience? Beyond scraping the bottom of right, can a nation rise anew, shake off the dust of mob rule, and shower in humanity's rainbow? Or is our destiny a fire dance to Nero's violin, a conducted crescendo of, by, and for some of the people all of the time? Beyond blind obedience to proving humanity and endangered species, and the easily manipulated, vulnerable to violent tendencies hidden just beneath patriotic facades, all we like sheep herded by demigods? Or will we yet discover the essence of the American dream is 
the wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and our climate-educated children will lead them. After EPA Administrator Gina McCarthy testified that Congress passed a law putting individual states in charge of enforcing drinking water standards, including Flint, Michigan, Representative Earl L. Carter, Republican of Georgia, insisted, The law, I don't think anybody here cares about the law. Beyond this, could even Pope Francis inspire a greater confirmation from Senator Mitch McConnell? Beyond credit card scams, hacker scams, and political shams, are we too scandalized to recognize infrastructure includes the exceptional freedom to come together before a 9-11, to avoid a je suis Charlie. It's holding these truths to be self-evident. Attacks on BXL are attacks on us all, but our greatest terror threat comes from within from neighbors and fellow citizens slowly eroding our national decency. It's just like dripping contaminated water on the hearts and minds of our young, or voting for those who believe waterboarding is a family value. Is that not exactly how ISIL believes the West was won? Beyond the if-it-leads-it-bleeds gossip of corporate-owned TV media, vitriol social media postings, animal agriculture, pharmaceutical greed, and TPP, is there clean air, safe water, and a saved rainforest? Or are we electing to bequeath corporatism's food deserts, drought, and oil wars to our children? Beyond manipulative, speculative, and sensational headlines, is there conspiracy to distract or motivation to act? Are we beyond knee-jerks, conceiving beyond yesterday to live beyond today? Beyond simplistic answers, are we questioning enough? Do we choose to do unto others before they do it to us, or shall we reach for the sky and each other? Beyond conservative sucker punches poisoning our thinking, the choice is clear. Shall we overcome or succumb? Join us. Become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Thank you. Thank you for continuing to listen to, support, and share the Reasonable Voice Blog Talk Radio with family and friends, especially online. We enjoy hearing from you, and in response, yes, we are now accepting new company and business advertisers and welcoming organizations seeking to be one of our sponsors. So please do continue to email us at thereasonablevoice at gmail.com. However, if you prefer to simply make a donation, your donations are greatly appreciated and can be made through PayPal by clicking on the donate button found at the top of the homepage of the Reasonable Voice. Website. Thank you for joining us today to make every day as reasonable as possible. We hope you will download and share our downloadable podcasts. I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, hoping you will become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world.